there's a show called Person of Interest. It's a TV show. It starts off with this byline. You are being watched. The government has a secret system, a machine that spies on you every hour of every day. You're being watched. Reading about this, there's something called Google Glass that 10,000 people are trying out. It's a miniature computer worn like spectacles on, on your nose. It, it aims to replicate all the functions of a smartphone in a device perched on your, the nose of a person. It's, it's flexible frame holds both a camera and a tiny screen and makes it easy for users to take photos and send messages and search for things online at the drop of a hat. Google Glass. In Russia, where insurance fraud is rife, at least one million cars have cameras on their dashboards that film the road ahead to fight against insurance fraud. By the way, this device is against the law in the country of Austria. If you have such a device, it's a $14,000 fine. So don't use it in Austria. Police forces in America are starting to issue officers with video cameras pinned to their uniforms which record their interactions with the public. Collar cams help anxious cat lovers keep tabs on their wandering pets. I've been waiting for that one. <laughs> Paparazzi have started to use drones to photograph celebrities in their gardens or on their yachts. You're being watched. In Psalm 139 is a passage that deals with the character of God. And we're going to be looking at this psalm for a couple of weeks Psalm 139 talks about the fact that God is all-seeing. God is all-seeing. God is all-knowing. And my, my, my thesis this morning is that, is that David and the singers who sang this in a worship service or, or quoted it could do so with absolute glorious hope because they understood that God had made a way for them to be Come, people who could come into his fullness through the sacrificial system as they awaited Messiah King. But if you read Psalm 139, apart from understanding God's covenantal mercies, it should strike terror in your hearts. Psalm 139, the first five verses. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are fully acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you have laid your hand upon me. Now, now if, if, if you just read that as the God all-seeing, God all-knowing, all without understanding the way of mercy in the character of God, this strikes terror in your heart. You see, in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, the first man and woman fall into sin. And the Bible says this, chapter 3, verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord and the Lord God called a man and said, Where are you? 
And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God says, who told you you were naked? Who told you you should be clothed with shame? Who told you that you were this way? Sin had entered the human race. And then one of the most beautiful statements in all of the Bible, it says, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. You see, it is a horrid thing to meet the living God clothed in fig leaves. The fig leaves of your own righteousness and own self-improvement. The fig leaves of what you can do to accrue his favor. The only way to come in the presence of God is through the sacrifice of another one. The shedding of blood. And then the, the, the theme continues. Adam and Eve have two boys, Cain and Abel. It says this in chapter 4. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord God had regard or accepted the sacrifice of Abel. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. You see, Cain, forgetting the lesson, taught to his mom and dad, came in the, with the fruit of his own labor. Here's the fruit of the ground. Here's what I have done. Abel said, it's only through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God that makes me right with you. Someone else must do what, that which I cannot do. God had regard for the sacrifice of Abel. It is a horrid thing to meet God clothed in fig leaves. And so Cain continued in this thought system, and it says this, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain never, Cain never came to the point of saying, I must be clothed in another. And as you continue this understanding, you think of the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, the children of Israel are in this powerful land called Egypt, and they're being pulverized and, and enslaved and put in chains by a guy named Pharaoh. And so God raises up a prince named Moses who formerly was in Egypt, and he sends him back to Egypt. And he says, Moses, you're going to be my man, and through you I will get Pharaoh's attention, and he will release my people to go to the promised land. And so Moses goes into Pharaoh, and there's ten calamities that have the people of Egypt, but Pharaoh's heart is hardened. God brings upon the Egyptians the water being turned to blood, the plague of frogs, the plague of gnats, the plague of flies, the plague of pestilence, the plague of darkness, the, the plague of lice, the plague of skin disease. And Pharaoh didn't listen, didn't listen, didn't listen, didn't listen, didn't listen. And then God says, well, he will listen to this one. It's called the plague of the firstborn. God says on a particular night in Egypt, Moses, the firstborn animal and child will die. They're going to die except for the children of Israel. He says, what I want the children of Israel to do is I want them to take a lamb or a goat. And, and this lamb says in chapter 12, verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall sacrifice this lamb, and you shall take the blood and put it on the side and the lintels of your doorframe. And you're to stay inside. And when the, the Lord's presence sweeps through Egypt and the firstborn die, I will pass by the homes who have blood on the side and the lintel of the door frames. And that's what happened. It was a calamity, a night of mourning in Egypt. You see, it is, it is a terrible thing to meet the living God without blood on the door frames and the top of your door. 
And so the children of Israel leave Egypt and they see incredible things happen. They, they see the Red Sea parted. They see Pharaoh's army destroyed. They see a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. And they, 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 after years of wonder, they come to Mount Sinai and is quaking with smoke and grandeur and glory because God is holy, holy, holy. And I'm sure many of the people who really understood the character of God looked at each other and the children of Israel and they said, how in the world can we ever come into the presence of this living God who is holy, 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 who parts the Red Sea, who is a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, who, who, who gives us the Ten Commandments. How? And he says, but, but do you not remember? Do you not remember in Egypt where there was blood on the door frames and the top of the door and God passed by? Do you not know the sacrificial system is pointing to the reality that there's a coming Messiah who will bear our sin? That's the only way we can stand in the presence of God. It is a horrible thing to come into the presence of the living God clothed in fig leaves. And then you go forward. You come to the book of Joshua. And Joshua leads the children of Israel across the Jordan. They go into this promised land, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And they start the conquest of the land. And there is a huge obstacle called the city of Jericho. It's an impregnable fortress long before gunpowder. How can we conquer this city? And so Joshua sends some spies into this huge walled city to see if there's any way the city could be taken and the spies go to a place where many men who had anonymity and traveled went. They went to a house of prostitution. And they met a woman there named Rahab. And Rahab had a sense and understanding that these were men who came from this coming army who served the living God. And so Rahab pulled them aside and she says to these men in her house of prostitution, she says, when I heard about the character and the power of the living God, my heart melted with fear as did all the hearts of the people of Jericho. And basically she says, spare me. And, and, and she spared the spies. She, she covered them. She sent the officials another way instead of exposing the spies. And this is what happens. Joshua 2. The men said to Rahab, the spies, we, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made with us. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house and into the street, his blood shall be on his head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on his head. And what happened, the children of Israel came, they marched around the city seven days, they shouted, the walls came down, except for a place on the wall where there was a window with a scarlet cord. And I can hear Rahab now as the walls are starting to crumble. She says, come into my house, come under, come under the protection of the scarlet cord, come under the protection, come under the protection. And they were saved. The scarlet cord foresignifies, foreshadows the coming Messiah King. It is a horrid thing to meet the God who is if you're not under the protection of the scarlet cord. See, that's the gospel. Then you fast forward to the New Testament. In, in the book of Matthew, we're introduced to this man called John the Baptist. When I get to heaven, I really want to meet John the Baptist. What a character. 
You know, kind of a desert warrior. I, I, I may be wrong. I see John the Baptist kind of a martial arts fighter. Just a tough guy. John the Baptist probably, let's say he went to a Greco-Roman wrestling tournament and he weighed in at 155 and he says, I weigh 155, but I'm going to wrestle the 190-pound class because I am tough. His, his diet, locust, wild honey. He was paleo before paleo was cool. Camel hair has his clothing. He pulled no punches. You see, if you study the history of preaching, there have been times in the history of preaching where preachers called people out by name. They're preaching on theft. Bob, are you still a thief? Have you repented? No, I'm not gonna, that's not my New Year's resolution. Okay? That's kind of wild. First Great Awakening, there's a pastor in, in Boston who really was excited about what God was doing. He made a list of pastors he knew who were truly regenerate, born again, and those he thought were not. And he stood up and read the list in church. So these guys really know Christ, these guys don't. That's not the way you win friends and influence people. So John, but John the Baptist took names. I mean, these guys were coming out, these Pharisees and Sadducees were coming out to be baptized. He's preaching a baptism of repentance. Prepare the way for the one that's coming. Get your act together. The one who's coming is almost here. And he says, and he sees these Pharisees and Sadducees, and he points at him and says, You bunch of snakes. Who told you to get baptized? Hey, produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. Get it together or get out of my face. He says the axe is at the root of the tree and the tree is about to be chopped down. Don't say we have Abraham as our father. Big deal. What are you doing? And yet with all of this strength and all of this really go for it, in the book of John, he after saying all these things, he looks up and he sees Jesus and he says to his men, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a horrible thing to meet the living God if you're clothed in fig leaves or if you have no blood on the door frame of your house or if you have no scarlet cord hanging from your window. And so, see, David got that. The covenant people of Israel got that. That's why they could read this psalm. God, you know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before you've laid your hand upon me. Then he says this, verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The, the, the knowledge of the living God who is love and mercy in Christ is so high, so deep, so strong, I can't begin to grasp the profundity of it. And I want to know this God. I, I want to know this God. I want to be able to say with the shepherd king, as a boy, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. I want to know this Christ who, thinking about Psalm 23, said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. See, David could talk about 
the all-seeing, all-knowing God because he was a faithful, covenant-keeping God who was Messiah King who had made a way that foresignified the coming finality of Jesus on the cross. That's the gospel. I was thinking about Psalm 16 and, and God, the, the wonderful ways of God. The new year, I was meditating on this psalm. I just love Psalm 16. Psalm 16 says in, in verse 6, the, the lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. Or some versions say delightful inheritance. Beautiful. Delightful. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. It's too high. I have a, 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 a beautiful inheritance. The lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. And I just said, God, thank you, thank you, thank you that because of your absolute goodness, the lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. Sins forgiven, the hope of heaven, the joy of fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you, thank you, thank you. One thousand times, thank you. Let me tell you something. There's nothing, I mean nothing, nothing more beautiful. I mean nothing more beautiful, okay? Nothing than to sit down with a man or a woman who's walked with Christ for 45, 50, or 60 years, and they say, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And there's a, there, there's a serenity and a glow about them. Yeah, they've been through hard times. Yeah, they live in a fallen world. Yes, they've buried loved ones, but boy, said, God is good. He's hemmed me in behind and before. He's laid his hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. It's high. And there's nothing more beautiful than to see a man and a woman who've grown old together walking down the hall holding hands after 50 years of marriage. Pleasant places. A, 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 a beautiful inheritance. So I, I look at this and I say, well, you know, what's the ramp up? What's the ramp up? Wonderful, too wonderful for me. Beautiful place, delightful inheritance. And I look at chapter, Psalm 16, the, the ramp up. Very quickly, verse 1. Oh God, I take refuge in you. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So, so point number one, if, if I'm to be able to say the lines have fallen for me in, in pleasant places, I, I've got to see the absolute goodness, mercy, and grandeur of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and, until I, I really get the goodness of God, I mean get it, I mean get it in my soul, that God is for me in Christ, that, that the living God is my heavenly Father, that He's given me the Holy Spirit. I've got to get, until I get the goodness of God, the game, the game can't even start. John Calvin, very early in his magisterial work, work called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, I put a quote in the bulletin. He says this, although our mind cannot apprehend God without rendering some honor to Him, Calvin says, everybody knows there's a God and that he's majestic and glorious. And he said, it will not suffice simply to hold that there is one whom all ought to honor and adore unless we are also persuaded that he is the fountain of every good. The living God is the fountain of every good. That's what the Bible says. And he goes on, he says, I'll call piety that reverence joined with love of God which the knowledge of his benefits induces. I love that sentence. I'll call piety that knowledge 
or that reverence joined with the love of God, which the knowledge of his benefits induces. For until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of their every good, and that they should seek nothing beyond him, they will never yield him willing service. Nay, unless they establish their complete happiness in him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to him. And let me just ask you, do you see that God is the fountain of good? Do you see him as a river of delight? Do you glory in the greatness of the cross? Is, is that... God is my refuge. He's my good. He's my good. And then he says later, he says this in verse 3, he says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. They're, they're, the, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And, and then you say, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. As for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones. Now think about saints in the land, fellowship, and I, my heart is drawn to Hebrews chapter 10 in the New Testament, and just verse 19, he's talking about the glory of the once and forever work of Christ on the cross, that he fulfilled the sacrificial system. So it feeds right into what we're saying. It says, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the, the, the holy places by the blood of Jesus, blood on door, door frames, skin, by a new and a living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, then he says three times, let us, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He says, well, let's draw near with confidence because it's not what we've done, it's what he's done for us. We're clothed in his righteousness. We don't have fig leaves. We're covered with the goodness of Christ. So let us draw near with confidence. And he says this, verse 24 or 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So as you see your position in Christ, hold strong. And then he says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more you see the day drawing near. Whenever you read this passage, a lot of people say, well, you need to worship with God's people on the Lord's day. Don't, don't start absenting yourself from the people of God. You need to be with God's people. That's absolutely part of the text. But it's also this, let us consider, think, ponder how to stir up one another to love and good works. And you, you read that and you go, you know, am I in relationships in the body of Christ, where I rejoice in the excellent ones in the land, and who, people that can stir me up to love and good works, people who rejoice when I can rejoice and weep when I weep, people who just know me and care for me and love me. And I, I, I would just say to you, if, if we're to say the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, we, we need to be people who are in relationships in the body of Christ. Are you in a community group, a small group where people know you? That's so essential. It's so important. 
read a book called Contentment last week, and a week before last by a guy named uh, Swenson. And he talks about friendships. And he says, in reality, most people really can't have more than five friends who know them, something like that. That may be an understatement. But he says, it's easy to know 300 people, hey, how you doing? But he said, we need soulmates who we walk shoulder to shoulder with as we represent Christ and go into the kingdom. It's just essential. And so as you look at Psalm 139, you come to this, really the conclusion of the psalm is really the thesis of the psalm. And he says this, based upon the wonderful nature of the God who hymns me in, based upon the beautiful inheritance and the glorious heritage, he says this, he says, search me, O God. I'm in need. I'm a needy person. Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. He, he backs him and says, Lord, I, I, I need your daily grace. You put your hand upon me behind and before you. You've laid your hand upon me. It's, it's too wonderful for me. I, I cannot attain it. So, Lord, please take everything that I am and show me my life and my heart and see if there's any grievous, hurtful way in me and lead me in the way of, of peace and joy, the way everlasting. You know, sin destroys your life. Sin, unconfessed, unforsaken, unchecked, destroys. It cripples. It destroys family systems. Some of you have just come back from a holiday break and you just go, man, my family system is dysfunctional. Well, all family systems are dysfunctional because we're all sinners. But some are much deeper than others. And I want the grace of Christ to so permeate my life that, 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 that he guards me from myself. Search me, O oh God, know my heart. And Test me, see, see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There's a man named, excuse me, a woman named Ann Quinlan who's wrote for years for uh, Newsweek. She had a regular column in Newsweek. She wrote for the New York Times. She received a Pulitzer Prize. She, she wrote this a few years ago in the New York Times. She says, each of you is as different as your fingertips. Why should you march to any lockstep? Our love of lockstep is our greatest curse, the source of all that bedevils us. It is the source of homophobia, xenophobia, or fear of foreigners, racism, sexism, terrorism, bigotry of every variety and hue, because it tells us that there is one right way to do things, to look, to behave, to feel, when the only right way is to fill your heart hammering inside you and to listen to what its timpani is saying. You know, timpani, the drums. Well, this is a brilliant woman, but I, my, my problem is, what if my internal timpani is telling me to kill Jews with the Nazis? What if my internal timpani is telling me to be sexually abusive to children? What if my internal timpani is, is telling me to be crassly racist? My internal timpani is messed up. See, I, I, I need an external word to speak truth to me. I need to say, search me, O oh God, and know my heart. 
Try me. Test my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me, and you lead me, you lead me in the way everlasting. I need to stretch myself out and do these things. I, a Christian should be known for their inner warfare and their inner peace. You see that? Search me, know me. Inner peace. You put your hand upon me. Jerry Bridges wrote a wonderful book that many of you have read called The Pursuit of Holiness. And he said this, no one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in his life by the cross. But just as surely, no one will attain it without effort on his part. God has made it possible for us to walk in holiness, but he has given us the responsibility of doing the walking. We do everything we do out of response to the glory of the cross. But the glory of the cross does not lead us to do nothing. It leads us to say, search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, Lord, lead me in the way everlasting. Take away grievous things from my heart. So I very quickly, just a, a quick game plan. Number one, read the Word. This, this is Sunday School 101. Read the Word. Be in the Word of God. I, think about it. This month, why don't you meditate and memorize Psalm 139, verses 5 and 6, and just pray through it. Psalm 139, 5 and 6. Just be people of the book. Number two, pray. Pray. Prayers. Prayer is tough, but it's our joy, it's our calling. Let me, just, let me mention one aspect of prayer. Okay, listen. Husbands and dads, pray as a family. Pray as a family. Dads, husbands, you're the servant leader. You take the garbage out and you take the bullet if a terrorist hits your home. You also lead. Call your family together spouse, if you have no children, if your children have left, just read portion of scriptures, have a, a 30 seconds of prayer. Just say, we're going to invite the power of the living Christ into our home. Dads, do it. Do it. Go to bed with your kids tonight and lay there if they're small and pray with them. Pray with them. Almost every night I sing the same hymn to my kids. So if they're in church and that hymn is sung, they fall asleep just like that. Third thing is the importance of fellowship. Have, have people in your life who know you, who walk with you. Get in a small group. So essential. Consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. In June of 2011, there was an airplane crash on the Poland of, excuse me, on the boundary of Finland and Russia, on the Russian side. 47 people were killed. One stewardess and four passengers survived. This is what happened. Uh, the, the navigator, they found out later, was drunk. Um, and the pilot was his junior, so the pilot was listening to him. But it says this, that equipment at the Russ Airplanes destination, which is a tiny airport in western Russia that has eight syllable words that I'm going to try to pronounce. Near the border with Finland was outdated. Instead of the automated system required at Russian airports since 1992, 
Investigators said it measured visibility with nine signposts, but just two of them were illuminated. In fact, the report went on to say that the fog clung as low as 98 feet above the airfield. There was no visibility. The 45-year-old pilot had reasons to trust the navigator despite his inebriated state. Investigators said the navigator was five years his senior and had 25 years flying experience and more than 13,000 hours on this particular plane, a TU-134. And so you hear in the voice recording the, the, the navigator saying, keep on going in, I'll get you there, keep on going in, keep on going in, and then it goes silent, there's a crash. And in the aftermath, the Russians released a report that said this, the report faulted the entire Russian crew for lack of discipline and excessive self-assurance. And I thought, what an incredible definition of sin. Lack of discipline and excessive self-assurance. That's why I love this. The psalmist says, Lord, search me. Know me. Test my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way and lead me. Let me be a repenting man. Behold the goodness of God. Behold, it is a glorious thing to know God in the person and work of Christ. And behold, it is a horror to meet the living God clothed in fig leaves. We must be clothed in the goodness of Christ, the work of Christ. Well, let's pray. We are so thankful, Lord, for this year, 2014, and we pray that by your grace and for your glory, you would make us the people of God who give you the glory and the adoration. God, work in us. Show us what it means to be a people who go, uh, who cry out with the psalmist. Lord, you search me and you know me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Before I say a word, you know it fully. You've laid your hand upon me. You've hemmed me in behind and before. May we just say with joy, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Because you are the covenant-keeping God, and I come to you on the basis of the finished work of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away my sin. And as I see that, may I cry out, oh God, change me in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.